Hello and welcome to Underscore, the podcast from Asa Allen, featuring leading experts in economics and public policy. I'm your host and CEO of Asa Allen, Paul Hislop. We're joined here today by my colleague David Campbell to discuss the recent decision by the Australian Government to cancel the submarine contract with France and proceed with an investigation into acquiring nuclear-powered submarines from either the UK or the US. David, how are you? Great to have you on the show. Pleased to be here, Paul. So, David, um, I should start out by saying that uh, before we get into this subject, that, that neither you or I consider ourselves to be experts in defence strategy or defence capability planning. We're really looking at this subject from an outsider's perspective. That's very fair, especially in relation to submarines. I've got some history in looking at uh, aspects of defence strategy, but uh, not submarines as such. Yeah, and, uh, my recollection is you have done for quite a lot of clients, you, uh, a range of clients. You've uh, you've advised um, on long lead time um, projects, particularly ones where there's re- irreversible investment decisions, and where there's a lot of uncertainty about the future. Can you? Can you give us a bit of a view of how you think about those kind of projects and the way that you advise clients to think about how to deal with the long lead times, the irreversibility and the uncertainty? Yeah, certainly. It's uh, it's it's an area I've been working in now for a few decades, actually. Uh, and in fact, I came into this area doing work on the planning and management of major R&D programs back in the 80s, which was really early in the life of the modern economic theory of real options and how you do plan and manage strategy in the presence of, uh, of both high levels of uncertainty and a capacity to adapt your strategy to new information as it emerges. And it's that combination of things that, that distinguish these. I mean, there have historically been many areas where Life ticks over fairly predictably. And I mean, for example, for for many decades uh, in Australia, uh, decisions to plan another dam were pretty straightforward sorts of ideas. You populations growing, uh, you get periodic droughts. Um, We're reaching a point where we need to have another dam before we go into the next drought. There was a well-defined way of approaching that problem and you couldn't get it badly wrong population would continue to grow and uh, water would eventually get scarce. And so they were fairly robust sorts of decisions. But really over the last 25, 30 years, and probably for all sorts of good reasons, this should have been a lot earlier, uh, we had this area emerging where the, the nature of the uncertainties meant you could actually get it badly wrong. And you have to think about if I have to commit large sums of money to a very rigid sort of an investment strategy that will work under quite plausible conditions, but that I might deeply regret under other decisions, is there a sensible way to grapple with that? And that was, that was the very area that this sort of real options reasoning emerged from. And as I say, starting with R&D, I got heavily involved in it. And one of the earliest lessons I learnt was I was typically dealing with people who completely understood this. Research planners, defence infrastructure planners, policy makers, they know that you live your life adaptively. 
Yeah. You're, you know, sensibly, given that there are uncertainties, you'll be changing your decisions as you go along. But in many cases, they were being confronted by rules for justifying investment that really didn't get them focusing on how do I sensibly handle the inflexibility? And there was a strong tendency to require a business case built around base case assumptions of what might reasonably be expected to happen. Uh, and let's more or less optimize around that, make sure it works under a few variants from it. But really it was predicated on, I know what I'm gonna build. Mm. I just don't know how valuable it's going to be. Whereas we were increasingly moving into an area where we said, well, maybe you'd be better off not building that. And an obvious example of that arose during the millennial drought when um, a number of Australian capital city jurisdictions were starting to worry about running out of water. Now, the traditional approach to possibly running out of water was to build a dam, but ideally build it and fill it before the drought starts. Uh, that was a bit too late by the time this yeah, was happening. <laughs> um, but it still led to a flurry of excitement with clients desperately looking for cheap sources of additional water to deal with their problem. Uh, and all sorts of projects were being proposed. Uh, now, I was drawn in and asked actually to do some cost-benefit analyses on a whole series of projects in a number of cases here. But within a few hours it changed. And this I want to make as a central point of this approach. Once we started brainstorming it, we got to a point fairly quickly where I was asking the client, are you sure you're asking the right question here? Yeah. Uh, in a world in which there's fluctuating rainfall, we're in the middle of a deep drought that could break tomorrow, it may not break for 10 years. Um, we could spend an arm and a leg getting ready to make sure we, we get through this drought, but what's the best strategy in those circumstances? And we had moved into a world where instead of building a dam, you might consider building something like a desalination plant. Yes. And in fact, a number of jurisdictions had already started doing that. But what they did was they built the desalination plants using exactly the same paradigm they had used for building dams. You've got to have the physical capacity sitting there. And when you turn it on, you'll keep it running because that gives you the cheapest water. And we're in the business of buying cheap water. Mm. And I said, that's not the problem as I am hearing it here. The problem I'm hearing it is you're worried about the reliability of the water supply. You want cheap insurance to make sure that you can maintain an adequate supply of water but is cheap water the same thing? Is cheap insurance the same as cheap water? And it turns out with desalination plants you haven't built yet, they're very different things. Yeah. An alternative to building a huge plant and running it flat out is to build is to plan for a small plant that is scalable, to delay committing to building and as late as you safely can and to start building and to progressively scale up if and as the circumstances dictate that you need to go to the next stage. And that can be true under pretty broad conditions, even if the resultant water is more expensive than the water you would get out of running a, a big desal plant flat out. And a feature of running a big desal plant flat out in a coastal city is that a very high proportion of the cheap water you buy will end up going over the top of the dam and running out to sea. 
Uh, it isn't good value to be cheap any more than the cheapest unit power in the electricity system is necessarily the smartest solution to peak demands. Yeah. And David, that point about insurance, I think that's um, a good segue actually probably to the main sort of topic that we wanted to talk about today. Because in a way, if you think about our defence force, it's a, it is an insurance policy against a range of different potential things that might happen in the future. Yep. So when you heard about the change in strategy for the submarines to move from the French um, option to an as yet unknown nuclear powered option, what was it about that that made you think that you could bring this sort of thinking to bear on it? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a curious set of statements that came out of government that had you worried that due process may not have led to all of those. It was a, um, it caught a lot of people by surprise, including a lot of Frenchmen. It changed what had seemed to be a fundamental plank of Australian defence policy that we weren't going nuclear in either power drives or weapons, and that, mm. that took away one of those planks in the decision. But I did, my immediate reaction wasn't, for example, to think that those that a nuclear-powered submarine would not be as good as a, as a conventionally-powered submarine. I can see all sorts of good reasons for wanting a nuclear-powered submarine if you're into mm. submarines. But I did see a process which seemed to be telling us it was going to be more expensive, it was going to take longer to do, we're going to have a fresh design phase, just about the time as I understood it that we were coming towards the end of the design phase for the French submarine, we re-embark and that's part of why it's going to take longer. And we were hearing the government saying essentially that this was a smart strategy because of concerns that have emerged in places like the South China Sea and what have you. Mm. And I had this sense that those submarines, uh, they're suggesting may not be available until after 2050 and almost certainly into the 2040s. Mm. The chances that the geopolitical environment changes substantially before then would seem to be very high. And having observed the way that, uh, for example, drone air fleets had been emerging to um, take a significant slice of the Air Force capability going and whatnot, and having a general awareness of the uh, development of some drone submarines by various parties and whatnot, I said this has many of the features of a classic options planning problem. You're designing a massive R&D program to design and then build an incredibly high-tech product mm. and presumably one that's never been built before. We don't appear to be saying we'll buy off the shelf from the US or the UK. You then got 30 or so years assembling this fleet with its own capabilities. We're getting two thirds as many submarines as we were planning to get from the French when presumably for national defence reasons, there is some advantage in having more subs, not just more potent subs. Yeah. And we've got a change in geopolitical scene. And I queried, come 2040 or 2050, what were the chances that the big advantage of a nuclear-powered submarine, which lies in its long deployment capabilities mm. without anybody knowing where you are, mm. What are the chances that technologies by then will have moved to the point that a lot of the value of that capability would have gone? 
And that's an important feature of this approach. I have no doubt that those submarines could do in uh, 50 years' time what they do on the day they launch quite well and probably better. But you may find that, in fact, the value of doing that has declined greatly. So it had a lot of the features of that sort of problem, big irreversible projects, 30, 40 year lead times for all intents and purposes, major uncertainty in the geopolitical scene. In my mind, major technical, technological uncertainties as to whether new technologies, whether they be space-based or sensors distributed in the water or uh, mini subs that can detect and relay information, but the detectability and the ability to hide one of these submarines would change dramatically. And I said, if you look at the structure of that problem, it sounds very familiar. Yep. Yep. It's the sort of problem we've addressed before. And if we went back and said, what was the question you were asking that got you to this point? Now, if the mm. question you were asking that got you to this point is, I want a sub that allows Australia to deploy submarines up into the South China Sea, it would take you in a certain direction and they've probably suggested a pretty good solution. If the problem is you want a submarine capability to augment Australia's own defence capability and to allow it to support allies in a, in a broad environment without optimising it in terms of threats further afield, it looked more doubtful. And if you, wanted a, if you want a capability that's going to be valuable for what might be the next couple of decades when submarines are valuable, Mm. It didn't appear to have much going for it at all. Um, I fully understand sometimes you've got to, you know, basically take big decisions and commit yeah. for many years knowing there's a chance you won't need it. And let's be honest, the history of the Australian Defence Force has substantially been buying fancy bits of equipment that don't get deployed in anger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I don't mind that one bit. But they, but they provide the insurance policy. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. An, it is an insurance policy. But then, as I said, with that example with water, you reframe the question as, I don't want cheap water, I want cheap insurance of the reliability yeah. of the water supply. It led to a dramatically different solution from the one that was being considered yeah. using old world paradigms. And it occurred to me that we've got problems here that are broadly similarly structured we're the same sort of probing saying, let's go back to tours. Let's make sure we fully account for the value of flexibility that you could create or could exploit going forward in time has been weighed up before you take these decisions. And whatever you do, don't compare a conventionally powered French submarine in the 2030s to a nuclear powered US submarine in the 2040s if you're dealing with a threat that might come to a head long before the 2040s, for example. The comparison mm. of the value of the capability through time is going to be very different from looking at the capability of the designed submarines that we're talking about. And so I said, here's an area that if you open it up to this sort of devil's advocacy probing, Mm. looked at opportunities to limit sticking your neck out on very high cost, uh, irreversible commitments, looked at building more flexibility into the strategy, where might that take you and might it be to a different place by either saying that was a silly change of strategy, maybe we should rethink that decision or more realistically having jumped ship if that's the right uh, analogy to use here, <laughs> uh, having jumped ship, 
how do we make sure we get maximum value out of the process we now have? Because yeah. one feature of the decision they just took is they've actually created a lot of flexibility to rethink exactly what they want to do and how they want to do it because we've got a new design phase in front of us. But, but if we've made a decision to essentially go ahead with a UK or American submarine, have we created that flexibility? Or have we just locked in a different path? Well, uh, firstly, I don't know. I thought we had made a decision to buy a French submarine and it turned mm. out we hadn't. Yeah. Um, or we hadn't irreversibly committed to it. Yeah. I don't know what it's going to cost us to get out of it, but yeah. we hadn't irreversibly committed to it. Um my understanding is that they've really announced that we are looking at a, at a submarine that relies on a particularly high-tech nuclear power yeah. chain. Um, but what goes around it might be substantially up for grabs. Um, I would hope the process wouldn't require that you uh, use that. You still want to justify that that's the way to go. And maybe you've got a process which says where in our submarine strategy do some of the mini sub ideas that are emerging in the US and China mm. and other places fit? How does that align with Australia's capability in autonomous submersible uh, vessels that we already use for peaceful purposes? Uh, maybe we would rethink the nature of this acquisition program in, in important ways. I'm, I'm assuming we will continue to roll out a pretty potent submarine capability yeah. in the sense of an ability to function under the water. Yeah. But the detail of the technology, I hope, is on the table during this design phase. And if that's the case, I hope that the designers have the capability to recognise and justify decisions on the basis of the value of the flexibility that they can build into the strategy, as well as the technical ability of the submarine. Wouldn't you argue, though, or wouldn't it be arguable that one of the problems with Australia's defence acquisition program, this is very much looking at it again from an outsider's point of view, is that we, we go and take other nominal designs and we bring them back to Australia and mash them up in all sorts of different ways to try and fit in all sorts of different capabilities that we want. Isn't that in itself a problem? Um, no, and wouldn't, doesn't that then create lots of further delays? Wouldn't we yeah. just be better off just going and buying something that we know works? That is, you're not the first to ask that question, as I understand it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there has long been this thing. I mean, obviously, you get a group of sailors together in Australia and say, what sort of submarine do we need? or what sort of submarine capability we need. And they'll basically draw on the fact that I had a posting on a US sub or a this or a yeah. that, and I know how these things work, and we've got this long history of probing submarine technology, and I can design what I want. The same thing applied when we wanted a frigate. A feature of Australia, as I understand it, is we've got a pretty small navy. It's a high-tech, sophisticated, capable navy, but if you only have a few ships by and large, you end up requiring that an individual ship be doing quite a range of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, if you're the US, you'll tend to subspecialize rather more. And that gives you an ability to have a more diverse capability like that. So yeah, Australia's tendency is to say, nothing off the shelf perfectly fits our needs. Mm. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna establish a program in which we, we take a basic design that's got some appealing features and then we work out a shoehorn into it the specific capabilities that we want mm. 
my experience with surface vessels is that that two things about that process. One, be honest, you're embarking on a major R&D program. You're not embarking on an acquisition program at that point. Right. You've got all the uncertainties that come with mm. R&D programs and you know you're going to be explaining why the cost blowouts and everything else out through time because... And, and, and R&D programs, I mean, they, they know how to manage that uncertainty. They have gates and jumping off points and jumping on points and redeploy capital into different options. Yep. I mean, that, that's how they, they run their programs. Yeah. That's so, right. So and what well, you're saying it. is that's the way we should be running these acquisition programs. Exactly. And... Uh, uh, the two things, that's the way we should run the acquisition program, and that is also the way we should justify embarking on this acquisition yeah. program by saying it's going to do things this way. My perennial problem with the sorts of business case requirements that are imposed by governments or major companies mm. on proposed investments is that they make the serious mistake that's embedded in our so many classical cost-benefit analyses of essentially doing a cost-benefit analysis of the base case, yeah. of what will be rolled out and how the external circumstances will go with a bit of sensitivity testing, but saying, but and, and often looking at how the external circumstances would change, but failing to recognise that a good manager is, of course, going to manage internally yeah. for high flexibility and if 10 years out somebody announces a technology that tells me i can tell you where every submarine yeah. on earth is they would have the wisdom to say we should rethink this project before we spend more money on it for example but it doesn't get built into the upfront justification processes and you therefore don't necessarily arm the designers with the appropriate flexibility to build what will be an adaptive strategy to deliver submarine capability over time. It is not a process to simply design a big ship that goes underwater and, uh, uh, and it's over. It's an ongoing adaptive process and it needs to use the right paradigm for justifying and then managing that process. So, so the, the, the lead, I might understand the lead time for just manufacturing a submarine, a modern submarine, is quite long yep. and there's limited capability around the world to do it and you've basically got to get into some sort of uh, slot, slot of the process. Um, so that alone is a long, long period. Is, it, is there a risk going down this path that we'll just spend our whole time, end up staring at our navels, thinking about the additional flexibility we can build in and never actually commit to a submarine? And Is, is that a problem? Yeah. Well, we probably all remember the period when we were just waiting for the next big breakthrough on computers before we bothered to buy one and things yeah. like that. Well, maybe not all of us, but you and I can. <laughs> it, um, uh, that uh, obviously uh, you certainly don't want it to become an excuse for not doing anything. It does raise... Although, although the, the do-nothing option can sometimes be a well-thought-through option. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, and many times I have recommended delay mm. accompanied by processes to better invest in what you could roll out and better invest in better understanding the world into which you want to roll it yeah. out yeah. with decision points along the way. That and, and the key thing about that is it can very substantially reduce your exposure to the downside risks of getting things badly wrong. Mm. And just as importantly, 
it can give you greater flexibility to adapt your design in favorable ways should things yeah. go in a certain direction. So you're really trying to run a head strategy through all these uncertainties that yeah. are simultaneously limiting downside risk and accessing upside opportunities. Yeah. Now, submarines have a problem. I mean, they're, they're incredibly high-tech devices mm. but in which you pack an enormous lot into this juggernaut of a, of a vessel. Now, that's a problem. That's a, that's a reason, actually, for thinking about whether submarines is the way to go. Mm. But I can well understand that a sound process might conclude, well, there's all sorts of risks, but the potential if we get it wrong and we don't have them is high enough that we've got to buy it. Yeah. But um, uh, if you bring this sort of a real options lens to bear on something, by and large, ways of attacking a problem that are have less flexible, less flexibility, uh, lock you in more. That's that's damaging. You 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 mark them down for that, and they've got to compensate through the high value of what they do offer. And often they'll come through. And I have no doubt. And I think we got to this point basically uh, when we issued the contract to the French five years ago. The conclusion was: well, we do need some submarines, and. Uh, 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 and at that stage, we didn't take a decision that we need some submarines, but we're better with a non-nuclear than a nuclear. We basically were told, given the constraint that it'll be non-nuclear, this is what we'd, we'd like to get, I would expect. And we went down that path. But things are changing rapidly. As I understand it, the Americans and the Chinese are moving into quite a different approach to submarine activity, which will probably complement, continue with the old yeah. approach for many years. But if those approaches lead to far greater detectability on these things and whatnot, mm. and there is a serious chance of that happening, I would hope we had looked very carefully at other ways of coming at this problem, including possibly a hybrid submarine fleet that has some of these other capabilities mm. uh, that might delay the arrival of some of these things, but set in train a process that allows for it to be accessed relatively swiftly should we decide to throw the switch or whatever and work it through. Um, but uh, realistically, I don't think Australia in the short term is going to decide it doesn't want submarines. No. no. Um, but uh, these questions should be asked because they may lead you to some pretty valuable insights into how to get a better seat of fleet of submarines with a timing that is better aligned with your perception of the likely threats you're trying to deal with. Yeah. And uh, I don't think the process so far has necessarily yeah. done that. And, and if you if you think about um, the French, and again, I'm not I'm not arguing in favour of the French submarine or a, a nuclear powered submarine. Again, that's outside my expertise. But just looking at it logically, going from the Collins class submarine to the French submarine is really just an extension of existing capability using conventional power, similar capabilities, probably a better sub, hopefully a better submarine overall. You know, being built 30 or 40 years later. Um, but going to a nuclear-powered submarine, it, it's a change paradigm, not, not just for us, but for the people that are potentially hostile to us. Yes. I mean, how do, how, do, how do we factor in that thinking into the decision to move to a nuclear-powered sub versus staying with a conventional-powered sub? Yeah. Again, stressing that neither of us are submarine experts no, here. Um, but um, I think... If it, were, if it is true, I don't know the answer to this question, but if we were looking to optimise a submarine fleet to meet Australia's proximate defence concerns, yeah. 
which might well stop short of the, uh, uh, the South China Sea, if that would lead you to a fairly different decision about what you wanted, mm. we do have a challenge here, it seems to me. If, if these new subs with these nuclear power chains will be optimal for Australia's proximate needs as well as those other needs, this could sort itself out very easily. Yeah. And I completely understand why nuclear drives have attraction to submariners. I hear the arguments that it's a stretch for a country with very little domestic nuclear industry capacity to go down that track. I hear the countervailing arguments that these black boxes don't need a local uh, yeah. capability. I suspect the truth between the two. I agree. I agree. Um, yeah. But certainly in geopolitical terms, Australia forming a new treaty arrangement with the US and the UK and committing to nuclear-powered submarines, which so far sound like they're going to look awfully like a UK or a US submarine, mm. is putting signals into the South China Sea tensions that would be totally different from continuing to roll out a French-based conventional submarine capability and what have you that might look perfectly reasonable for Australia's proximate defence needs. As I say, if... If we can argue that that's the perfect solution for defending our coastline, uh, we might be in a more robust position. And that should logically be part of the question that goes on. I often ask people to focus on this. If there's an uncertainty out there, work out that, you know, if something might play out in one direction or the other, come back and say, well, if I told you it's going to go down path A, not path B, mm. what would you do? And if you're going to go down, if I tell you it's going down path B, not path A, what would you do? Mm. If those two strategies are fundamentally different in what you commit to now, mm. what you start doing now, if they're fundamentally different in the way that they would deliver this capability over time, you've got a dilemma that is likely to be better managed flexibly than through tossing a coin and going for one or the other or saying, well, we'll go for bigger is better as a criterion or whatever might be used. Yeah. If it's relevant to the optimal strategy, it really needs to be analysed in a sophisticated way, which is different from traditional cost-benefit. Yeah. And the, the, the thing about the, if the submarines, if, the, if one of the primary purposes of the decision to go with a nuclear power submarine, or at least investigate it, is all about defence in the North Pacific, South China Sea. Yeah. Um, and we're going to get the subs, I don't know, 2045, 2050, yeah. uh, may, maybe a little earlier. I mean, maybe we're being a bit pessimistic, yeah. but I think you and I have both seen how these programs can stretch out over time. Um, isn't there a pretty strong likelihood that the threat we see today will no longer exist or at least will have been resolved in a way, maybe favourably, maybe unfavourably, yeah. but at, at yeah. least resolved? And Yeah. What what would be the value of those submarines if they didn't actually meet those other needs that we have, if that threat had now disappeared? I think it'd look like an unfortunate mistake. <laughs> um, it uh, now again, the fact that there is, I mean, tensions could persist in the South China Sea for the next fifty years quite yeah. easily. I would have guessed that the recent trends are suggesting things are likely to come to more of a head earlier, and then I hope the resolution is more diplomatic than military. Yeah. Um, but 
you're right. If it, if it is resolved favourably or unfavourably, and these submarines really only make sense in the context of a capability to deploy into that sort of an area rather than Australia's defence area, then I think it is a challenge for defence planning. Yeah. Uh, we look like we're committing to, to uh, again, as to an outsider, we look like we're, and incidentally, I mean, the government has recently talked about plans to try and extend the Collins capability to 2050 or beyond if needed. So mm. the upside uncertainty about timing seems to be high, but hopefully the design phase can firm that up pretty quickly and mm. make it make it quicker. But if we're moving into this sort of a world where the optimal strategy is very different if you take that sole purpose, which is really Australia being drawn into a major international confrontation outside our most natural area of concern and interest under normal circumstances, then the decision is vulnerable mm. uh, to being found to have been very expensive. As I understood it, we were talking about spending more money, getting the capability later, having fewer submarines, mm. um, and carrying around nuclear loads that worry some people. Well, nuclear, uh, nuclear, nuclear power. Uh, nuclear power, power oh, yes, I'm not, 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 not worried not the, about... Not the weapons, no. But yeah. if... Uh, well, I don't know what happens if, uh, if a nuclear-powered submarine gets torpedoed, but I would suspect that there could be some environmental concerns. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that fuel were to get hijacked, there could be other sorts of concerns. Yeah. Um, we, of course, won't be the only ones with it there. We're not going to dramatically change the no. argument, but that's a bit like saying we don't have a big impact on the carbon emissions globally, so we shouldn't do anything. Yeah. Um, it, um, uh, but I do think that in the context of an already strained relationship with China, the symbolic value in simultaneously mm. creating AUKUS and going nuclear-powered submarine uh, looks threatening. Yeah. Um, uh, they might feel we can handle it all right, but that's red rag to a bull for us, and we've now got to talk about how we handle it. And we don't want to kid ourselves that deploying more capability will necessarily reduce the risks. Yeah. Uh, if there is a countervailing response from other countries, it could add to the risk rather than reducing it. So, so the, 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 the options analysis you're talking about, and I, I know you sort of laid this out, but it's not just about what might change in terms of the technology, what, what might better technology we might get if we wait and, and adapt. It's also how we might task that technology because the tasking may be completely different by the time yep. we get it. Yep. And I mean, my primitive understanding of how these design processes work is they by and large dream up different scenarios that imply certain tasking requirements under certain assumptions about where technologies and things are at. And they look for a design that can robustly deliver the tasking that they might reasonably require. And I wouldn't suggest for a moment they don't want to go through that process. Right no, of course not. Yeah. What they need to make sure they've done is build into that the scenarios in which, as you say, these uh, threats in, uh, to the north of Australia have, uh, have changed dramatically one way or another, in which the technologies have evolved to a point at which that task is going to have little value because they'll be tracking you every foot of the way. Yeah. Uh, all those variants become relevant to the decision. 
and will raise questions about whether there are other technologies that we're currently not pursuing that might be better ways of yeah. delivering on the objective of that tasking rather than the detailed technical specification of that tasking into the future. And a classic benefit cost analysis is not going to pick that up. Is I mean, they're not going to, the classic benefit cost analysis is not going to say, well, what's the cost of our decision in terms of the loss of uh, or the impact on the French and their response to us over time? And, yep. you know, one less potential ally in the Indo-Pacific. Um, whereas I think your approach is more likely to pick up those kind of costs because it's it's yep. it's those costs that you don't necessarily think about that may actually be key in the decision making. Yeah, I mean, I've only done back of the envelope scoping of these options questions, but right at the beginning of it was listing not just the options that you create by the change, and you clearly mm. do. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, if you want to get two headline options, you get you ultimately get a submarine that's probably got far greater capability to deploy it at long distance and to stay underwater for a long time. And if there yeah. aren't good sensor technologies, that could then be a pretty good vessel. Yeah. But also to tot up the options that you've either distinguished, extinguished or seriously degraded. Yeah. And that certainly includes relationships with natural allies. It includes the opportunity cost of essentially committing to more money. I mean, the government's basically said it's going to cost more. Yeah. Uh, now, that's ahead of the design phase, but uh, that's uh, that's entirely likely. The questions are the opportunities you might lose if there would have been a better design for meeting Australia's coastal defence needs mm. or proximate defence needs, including the possibility of having a larger fleet and, uh, and all that might go with that. Uh, you're probably going to have committed to these big things in a way that would make it very difficult after you'd spent 80 billion of the of 100 odd billion dollars yes. to say well we were getting that one wrong we're now going to acquire a uh, uh, a 20 billion dollar fleet of these mini subs that are twice as valuable yes. um it could slow that process down at least um and as i say i don't view that as a sign that a mistake it doesn't prove a mistake was made if the uncertainties evolve in a way that has you changing strategy but it's most unfortunate if you hadn't thought about the possibility and yeah. thought about whether there were ways we could reduce the exposure and possibly have a better place to take advantage of the developments that are occurring. And yeah. it's that process that can lead to much higher value. And if you talk about it in cost-benefit terms, it can dramatically change the benefit-cost ratio on, on the strategy as opposed to the submarine. Um, because it includes the possibilities of not spending money on things once it's proven that you don't want to do it, or to have created a capability that allows you more uh, usefully to adapt it in various ways through technology fit out or whatever uh, to make things happen differently. And we, uh, we do need to take that into account. So I'm not saying we don't want benefits greater than costs, so we don't want them to be, the difference to be as big as possible, if you like. Of course. Uh, but, and I'm not saying that cost-benefit analysis requires to get it wrong, but I have seen so many cost-benefit analyses of massively expensive infrastructure projects that got it fundamentally wrong yeah. by not including in their analysis an appropriate assessment of the value of the managerial flexibility in the strategy to limit downside and access upside. Yeah, certainly my experience um, in dealing with, uh, you know, manage those kind of management decisions with boardrooms and executives, 
is I, I think they feel uncomfortable with going ahead with a plan that might have a 20% chance of absolute failure. Yep. They, they, they sort of see that as, um, you know, why would you do that? Whereas, in fact, I think what, the way we often think about things, well, everything's got, everything's stochastic. Yeah. Everything's got uncertainty built into it. And, um, you know, the expected value might be really powerful, but there's always a risk of failure and you can still proceed quite happily. Yeah. And as long as you've thought about that, and you see the potential failure, and and you've got a jumping off point as early as possible when the failure emerges, or the, the likelihood of failure emerges. I think that then gives you a much greater chance of success. Yeah, I'd sooner after the fact be justifying the fact that we addressed that uncertainty head on. Yeah, uh, we worked it through and ended up concluding it was worth going ahead anyway. Yeah recognising this risk and it was factored in from the start. We incorporated these measures to minimise the damage, but it yep. still happened and we've been hit, compared to one which said we didn't avoid that 20% risk of it failing, we just ignored it. Just didn't think about it, yeah. Um, and as a result of ignoring it, we're a lot worse off than if we yeah. had built a more robust strategy. Ask those same companies how they'd feel about not take, not renewing their insurances for next year on key things. Yeah. Uh, and they'd say, of course we will. Now, it doesn't mean that a year in which you don't make an insurance claim was a year in which you made a mistake insuring. You didn't buy the services out of getting things fixed. You bought the peace of mind, if you like, associated with knowing I could manage those downside risks if they occurred. Um, and in some cases, you may commit to going ahead with a project which, frankly, there's a 20% chance it's going to kill the company. Either that is unavoidable or you say, well, take a calculated risk because the upside is huge. And any number of people have taken that. But it needs to be an eyes wide open, hmm. unbiased approach to the problem. The current assessment methodologies tend to be severely biased and they go to the board severely biased. Yes. Um, and uh, fortunately, that bias tends to be in favour of not investing more often than the other way around. You kill a project that's fundamentally a good idea if only you could handle the uncertainties more sensibly. Uh, but in some cases, it'll get things up uh, that threaten the company when it would have been quite feasible to go down a different path that would have been far less risky. Is there an element of the hollow man in this that, um, you know, Big announcements or big announceables are, are good politics? <laughs> well, there's a clear discrepancy between our political cycle and our submarine acquisition cycle. <laughs> um, and I probably won't be uh, voting in that cycle by the time they come around. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah and I, I mean, obviously, that's a problem that we have. It's a problem that democracies have probably yeah. more so than non democracies uh, of getting getting this alignment here. I would have thought that there was a sense of this announcement of a new, new big treaty with the US and the UK uh, of, of acquiring this new capability. There was at least fingers crossed that that would be uh, electorally quite attractive. <laughs> and I, again, I'm not saying it's the wrong decision. No, of course not. No. I am fairly certain it hasn't been well justified to the public yet. No. Uh, we, we may see that over the next few months as the election comes on. David, that's been a, a fantastic uh, discussion and uh, you've given us some really terrific insights into the way you would bring, uh, uh, the way you think about real options and how to deal with uncertainty to these kind of projects. Thanks very much for, for, for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
And, and thank you to uh, everyone who's listening for joining us today. I want to ask you to tune in next month uh, for another insider take on what's happening in the headlines or visit acelallen.com.au for more in-depth articles and insights. 